Father, I ask that you would just still our hearts this morning. Father, as we have lifted our voices in praise to you, Father, we do want to give you honor as a body of Christ here that we have gathered recognizing you as God, the only God, the creator of all things, including all of us. And there is nowhere else to turn. Our hope rests in you. Any joy we may experience comes from you. All that we have or ever will have that is good comes from you. And so we do lift our voices in praise to you this morning. And we come to this point in our service where we look to your word, the instruction manual, your love letter to us. And I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say. That we would listen for that still small voice. Recognizing that you know us personally, you know us intimately, and you want to relate to us. You want to speak to us. And so please set aside any distractions that, that may encumber our minds and allow us to focus on you. These things I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I am glad that you are here. Hopefully you are glad you are here. I've entitled today's message, The Value of Knowing Jesus. It really comes down to that, doesn't it? That is the essence of Christianity, is to know the Lord Jesus. I was thinking some in the preparation for today's message, and I thought about those things that we strive for in life, that we are willing to give everything, to pour out ourselves for goals or objectives, things that we have set before us that drive us towards success. I thought about some of the stories that I've heard about young men and women who have eventually made their way uh, to enrollment in West Point, prestigious military school. You know, it's one of those schools where you don't just get up one morning to decide, you know, I think I'm going to go to West Point. Some people spend almost their whole lives preparing to apply for West Point. Many parents look at their children and think, you know, my goal for my child is to eventually attend West Point. And so they will uh, enroll them in programs and encourage them to certain pursuits in order to build a resume so that they might one day qualify to be enrolled at West Point. I went on to West Point's website and was looking at, they even have a, a page on there that encourages young people uh, all of the things that they should be doing at a young age to, to try to be prepared to be accepted at West Point. Uh, it suggests, you know, to be involved in as many uh, civil or civic programs as possible but the interesting thing to me was that it it said not only should you be involved in these various programs but that you should aggressively pursue leadership positions 
in those programs. You see, according to them, it's not enough to just be involved in a group, but in order to eventually qualify for West Point, you need to be a leader, and you need to demonstrate leadership qualities at an early age. And so they encourage you not only to participate in groups and clubs and civic programs, but that you should aggressively pursue leadership roles so that you're building your resume so that one day you might qualify to be enrolled at West Point. That led me also to think about other ways that people pursue success and where they dedicate their lives to a goal. And I thought about the Olympics Young people at a very early, early age begin to prepare to compete in the Olympics. Again, I did a little research out of curiosity, and it said that some children as early as two, two years old, begin a path toward competing in the Olympics. Some parents who want their children to compete in the Olympics or think that their child may have some uh, genetic aptitude, I guess, will enroll their very young children in talent assessment programs where these so-called professionals will evaluate the child and, and give the parents some feedback about whether they think this two, three, four, five-year-old child shows any kind of skills or aptitude that might suggest that they are superior in a particular area, gymnastics or, or whatever, so that they might encourage their child to pursue that goal. It said in some, some sports in the Olympics that by the time you're five, you should have already started preparing. By the time you're seven, if you're just starting out at seven, more than likely you're behind others in your competitive sport so we're talking about people that pour their lives out for a goal they sacrifice everything in most of those cases friends are going out with friends friends are going to the movies friends are going to the mall friends are hanging out friends are going to the amusement park friends are taking a nap friends are playing video games but not these people these people sacrifice everything for their goal. And they live their life in such a way that they make choices, they make decisions. They decide about how they spend their time. They decide about where they live. They make decisions about what they eat and what they don't eat, all based on their goal to achieve what they have set before them. The Apostle Paul was just such a man. He was passionate. He was driven towards success. Even from an early age, he was driven. He saw himself as a stellar Jewish man. That he had set his sights on success within the Jewish community. And by all accounts, he was indeed successful. This man Paul, that we know as the Apostle Paul, was also known as Saul to uh, others. So he was Saul, he was Paul, the same 
Um, just like you might call me Frank, you might call me Franklin, you might call me Frankie. I'd suggest you don't, but you could. I grew up Frankie. I even have some little uh, awards and stuff at home that say Frankie. So I guess that would be acceptable. My middle name is David, so you could call me David. And so when we're talking about the Apostle Paul and we say Saul, you'll see in the New Testament his names, Paul and Saul, are, are interchanged. So that's who we're talking about here. But we see evidence that this man, Saul, was driven to succeed within the context of the Jewish culture. The first we are introduced to this man, Saul, is in uh, Acts chapter 7. And there, Jesus' disciple Stephen was uh, arrested for proclaiming the gospel. And he stood before the Sanhedrin and he gave an account of his testimony of Jesus and who Jesus was, that he was the Son of God, that he was the promised Messiah, he was the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one. And the religious, the Jewish religious leaders sought to kill him because of his proclamation of the gospel of the good news that the Messiah had come. And that in fact that that one who was the Christ, the much awaited Messiah was crucified by them. And so we pick up in Acts 7, after he has proclaimed the gospel, after he has said that Jesus, in fact, was the much-awaited Messiah, and making some accusations that those to whom he was speaking were responsible for the death of Jesus. It says that they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast, out, cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen to death. And so it's the first glimpse that we see of this staunch leader, this young man, this Jewish leader, witness to the death of Stephen. It goes on in Acts 8. Not only was he there, not only was he a witness to it, not only was he a bystander simply watching, but in Acts 8 it goes on, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. Saul approved of the execution of Stephen because he, like so many of the other religious leaders, took issue with the fact that Stephen was saying that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ. And so Saul approved of his execution. It goes on and says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3 says, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This man was passionate. He was driven with a goal to squash, to crush, to stamp out this thing called the way. The followers of this man, this teacher, Jesus, 
he had committed his life to this goal, to this objective, to stamp out any efforts to try to elevate this person, Jesus. And so Saul was ravaging the church, going in from house to house, looking for those who would be Christians and dragging them off and putting them in prison. Rarely do you see such passion, such commitment, but Paul had that. He was committed to his goals in life. He recognized that about himself. He recognized that he was driven, that he had a passion to succeed, perhaps in whatever he might put his mind to, but as a young man, even as a child, he was committed to being the best Hebrew, the best Jew possible. So much so that he even become counted among the religious elite, the Pharisees. But we look in our passage today in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, and we see there Paul reflecting a bit on this life of his. Acknowledging all that he had accomplished, all of the success he had known. But you may remember from our passage last week, the last part of verse 3, he reminds us, he says, put no confidence in the flesh. And so he springs off of that phrase, put no confidence in the flesh. And then he picks up in our passage this week and he goes on to explain from his own perspective, from his own life, his own testimony, what he has learned about that truth to put no confidence in the flesh. And so in verse 4 he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so he says, I realize not to put confidence in the flesh, but if it were of value to put confidence in the flesh, if anybody has reason and justification to put their confidence in the flesh, it's me. I have lived my whole life dedicated to a single goal, a single objective, and I have arrived, I have achieved those goals, I have succeeded and so if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh it's me and as he addresses these people he says if there's any of you who think that you have reason for confidence in the flesh regardless of what you've accomplished regardless of what you've achieved no matter what level of success that you think you have achieved I have more confidence I have achieved more. I have succeeded more. And if mine is not enough, he insinuates, then certainly yours is not. Because I have achieved more than you have. And to give illustration, he, he goes on and he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Because I was circumcised on the eighth day. And the significance there is, that he was not only circumcised because there were those who had become Jewish, that had become followers of the Jewish faith, that 
were circumcised later in life. But he says, from birth I was a Jew, that eight days after I was born I was circumcised. I was a Jew essentially from birth. And so by the rites, by the law, the Levitical law, those who were Jewish were circumcised on the eighth day. And so he says, from birth I was among God's select people, circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I am a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. So he's giving something of his resume. Much like those that I referred to earlier, someone who may apply to a college, who may apply to West Point, for them to say that I am qualified to be in your program. I am qualified to enroll in your school because look at my credentials. They're impeccable. I have done everything that is required to meet your demands. And so he's giving a bit of his resume of all that he had accomplished from his earliest age. He had been taught by the best teachers. He had followed the law to a T. He even presents in his letter to the Galatian church. He says, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This man is passionate. Passionate, committed, willing to sacrifice all to achieve his goals. We saw... This man Saul standing at the death, the stoning of Stephen. And then we see in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, any of those who are followers of Christ, followers of Jesus, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This man is so impassioned with destroying this church of Jesus, these followers of Jesus, that he wanted to go even beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem, that he had been going door to door and he had been finding men and women who were followers of Jesus and he was dragging them out and putting them in prison. And then he realizes that, you know what, some of these rats may have scurried away. They may have gotten out of Jerusalem and I'm going to go track them down. So he goes to the leaders and says, there may be some of these who have scattered outside of Jerusalem. I want your permission. I want your authority to go out and track them down. I'm willing to go even to Damascus and find these people and drag them back to Jerusalem so that we can put them in prison. 
Well, Paul had been successful his whole life in achieving his goals. But he was about to meet his match. Because as he set out for Damascus with the intent of destroying this church of Jesus, these men and women who would follow this man named Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus and he encounters the Lord Jesus himself. And so Paul gives testimony of his own salvation experience in Acts chapter 22. There Paul addresses the crowd after being arrested for proclaiming the gospel. You see, because once Paul encountered the Lord Jesus, everything changed. Everything changed. Not just some things, not just a few things, but everything changed. And so he comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He recognizes his deity. He recognizes that he is, in fact, the Messiah, that he was crucified. And so this man, Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, who He was, who He said He was, that He was the Son of God. And so He goes about proclaiming the gospel, but then He's arrested for doing so, and it is in this context that He shares His own testimony. He's been arrested, He's being dragged off to be put into prison, and, and he, he asks his captors, wait, wait, but before you drag me off, might I just have a moment to address the crowd? And so they allow him to do so. And he begins to speak and he says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. 
And so this was the proclamation of Paul to the witnesses, to the crowd gathered there, his own personal testimony of how he met Jesus and what changed his life. This man who once had persecuted the church, who had gone well out of his way to destroy the church, to track down followers of Jesus and to put them in prison. This man later wrote to the Galatian church and said, I, Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. You see, that old man, that one who would seek to destroy the followers of Jesus, the one who set out to destroy Jesus, had now accepted new life. Because that old man had been put to death. And so Paul says, I have been crucified. That old man has been crucified with Christ And it is no longer I. It is no longer that old man who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That same man who was impassioned all of his life, To achieve great things, to know worldly success. That man who had only known success, who had always been an overachiever, who had essentially always achieved every goal he had set, and he sets a new goal to destroy, to stamp out the followers of Jesus, and he meets the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus and everything changed no longer was his goal to destroy the lord jesus but he had a new goal now and that was to further the ministry of jesus to proclaim the gospel the good news of salvation before meeting jesus paul had invested his whole life in achieving great things in this world and he was very successful but we see in our passage today in verse 7 he says but whatever gain i had all of that that i listed all of that that i've spoken of all that i have achieved whatever gain i had i count it as loss for the sake of christ Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth or the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count everything as lost compared to the value of knowing Jesus Christ. You see, nothing, nothing is greater than the value of knowing Jesus. Jesus himself tells us this in a couple of parables. 
found in Matthew chapter 13. And there the Lord Jesus teaching about the kingdom. And in effect, He is the kingdom, right? I mean, He gives us access to the kingdom. He is the kingdom personified. And so in verses, or verse 44 of Matthew chapter 13, He says there, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And so in this parable, he says there's this man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. Realizing the value of that treasure, it's worth it to him to go and sell everything that he has, to give up everything that he has, to buy the field so that he might claim that treasure for his own. And so it is for us. Jesus also shares another parable, Matthew 13, verses 45, 46. He goes on and says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, this is the creme de la creme, this is the the pearl that everybody hopes to find in life. And he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that one pearl of great price. And so it is for us, there is nothing of greater value than knowing Jesus My question is, do you know Him? Do you know Him? Not do you know about Him, not have you heard of Him, but do you know Him? Do you truly know Him? And that question is relevant probably for everybody in this room because I dare say there are probably some here this morning who simply do not know Jesus. You don't have a relationship with Him. You've never bowed your knee to Him. You've never submitted to Him. You've never asked for forgiveness of your sins. You've never accepted His free gift of redemption and salvation. You've never repented of your sin and turned your back on a sinful life and asked Christ to come into your heart and to be your Lord and Savior. You've never done that. So you don't know Him at all. But then I also would... Consider the prospect that there are others here who do know Him, who have a relationship with Him, who have met the Lord Jesus, but you don't really know Him. You don't really know Him. You met Him. You're an acquaintance. You know where to find Him when you need Him. But you don't know Him. You don't spend time with Him. You don't spend time in His Word. You don't spend time in prayer and meditation. You don't spend time getting to know Him. So the question is, do you know Him? Do you really know Him? And that's the question that you've got to answer in your own life. It's not a question that I can answer. You need to ask that question. Do I know Him? And if you truly want to know Him, then He is sitting there 
waiting with open arms. Believe me. He wants to know you intimately more even than you want to know Him. Like a father loving his children, he says, come to me. Come to me. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So many people in our world today are beleaguered and, and weary and tired and, and afraid because they do not know Him. They've not taken His yoke upon themselves. They have taken their own yoke and they struggle with that burden every day. And yet Jesus says, I'm willing to give you rest. He says, I came that they may have life, that they may have it abundant. And we often feign that we want that. We want peace. We want joy. We want an abundant life. But God's Word makes it clear that the path to that, the path to that goal, the path to peace, the path to that joy and abundant life is through the Lord Jesus. We've seen the testimony of Paul. We've heard his own personal testimony that he came to realize that everything that he had achieved in life, all of his claim to success was for naught. It was for nothing. It was of no value at all when compared to the value of knowing the Lord Jesus. As I was going through this process of preparation, I thought about the great old hymn, In the Garden. It was written in 1913, a little before my time. But I love hymnody. I love old hymn books. I have several in my collection of books, just old hymns. And I find them to be a, a great treasure. I find them to be a great resource for prayer and, and meditation they are chocked full of such great doctrine sometimes it's a great tool just for devotion and meditation to read through some of these old hymns and not just sing them as so often we do but to really stop and think and, and look at the words and consider the words of what's being said and so this hymn, In the Garden, came to my mind as I thought about this knowing Jesus, about this infinite value of knowing Jesus in the truest sense. And the lyrics, the words of that hymn go like this. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear Falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And He walks with me. And He talks with me. He walks with me. And He talks with me. And He tells me I am His own. And the joy that we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known.
Now, when you read those words, I ask you again, do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you know Him in that way that He walks with you and He talks with you and He reminds you that you are His own? And do you have a joy in His presence that would compel you to stay there lingering in His presence because the joy you find there none other has ever known. Well, it is with this mindset that Paul goes on in our passage today and he says, for His sake, for the sake of the Lord Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In some ways, you know, he didn't truly lose them so much as he gave them up. No one took them away per se, but he was willing to sacrifice them on the altar to say those things are not what's important to me anymore. Those things are what, not what is of value to me anymore. For the sake of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things, and yet I haven't really given up anything at all because I count all of that stuff as just rubbish compared to the value of knowing Christ. He goes on and says, And to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, not the way I thought before, not where I felt like that I had to do it all, that I had to be the best at everything in order to achieve righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul had put his faith in religious success. He had put his faith in being religiously successful. He knew the law. He memorized the law. He knew every bit of it. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had put his faith in religious success. But you know, before we go condemning Paul and wagging our finger in the face of Paul for doing something so stupid, we need to stop and think. And and I ask the question, what are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your faith in today? Are you consumed with climbing the ladder of success? Are you being puffed up with academic head knowledge? Is your life about you? Or are you willing to say with Paul, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. I'm willing to sacrifice it. I'm willing to give it all. So that I might know Jesus more. 
the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 makes this clear. There is this substitution that takes place, my life for His life, my, my life that is rooted in this world, my life that is blinded by all the things that seem so important and so valuable here but yet are so futile and I'm easily blinded by that so I can hang on to this life where everything is futile or I can give up this life and take on his life where everything matters so it is a a substitution it's much like in accounting where you move something from the the debit column into the positive column where you have given up nothing but you've gained everything and so in the gospel of matthew the lord jesus says for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it if you seek to cling to and hang on to this life where you think that you have achieved so much and gained such success If you wish to save your life, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now listen to this last part here. He says, Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What are you giving? in exchange for your soul. If you're giving up your soul for this world, what are you getting? What is so wonderful, what is so important in this world that you are willing to sacrifice your eternal soul so that you might hang on to and cling to whatever it is in this world that keeps you from knowing Jesus? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, today seems to be hymn day because another one came to my mind as I was going through these passages and I surrender all. Written in 1896, but truths that transcend time. In this hymn, It says, all to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him. In His presence daily live. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Can you say that this morning? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, that I am willing to discount all of my worldly treasures, all of my worldly successes, that they are all but rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Paul says, I count everything as worthless compared to the value of knowing Jesus. He said, I have no righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. God's Word says that by faith you are saved, not by works, 
or knowledge or fame or power or wealth. None of those things will save you. There is nothing greater than the value of knowing Jesus. So I leave you with this final question. What are you willing to accept from this world in exchange for your soul? Because there simply is nothing greater than the value of knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together today that we are able to come before you and to sit under the teaching of your word. Father, that your word is powerful, that it reaches into our very depths. And Father, you can penetrate our heart. Even when our heart sometimes is callous and cold and hard, your word can penetrate that heart. We see that in the Apostle Paul, who had, in his early life, had set out not only to, to resist but he was warring against you. You said yourself, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was a warrior. He was fighting against you. And yet, on that road to Damascus, everything changed. And so it is in our own lives, Father, when we are willing to consider all this world has to offer is nothing but garbage compared to knowing you. Everything changes. There is nothing of greater value than knowing the Lord Jesus. So I give you glory. I give you honor and I give you thanks that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to a holy God. To find redemption, salvation through the shed blood of Jesus. For it's in that powerful name I pray. Amen.